Hey Cole, are you ready for the second to die St. Patrick's Day episode? Or as I like to call it, can Max go 60 minutes without offending an entire country? (laughs) (laughs) This can be a hard no from me. Oh boy. Welcome to Second to Die, horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And thanks for tuning in again on this, our holiday. St. Patrick's Day is kind of a holiday, I guess. I feel like once you get past college, it's not really (laughs) a thing. Well, Well, I used to celebrate it a lot because... I used to live in this area of New Orleans called the Irish Channel, and there's like a big parade for it. So my best friend and I, we used to just get literally trashed, and that was a pretty good time, but I'm I'm too old for all day drinking at this point in my life. I will lose like a week to a hangover. Also, nowadays, we there's no parades. There's no socializing. It is what it is. Everything is locked down. But sometimes we still make corned beef and cabbage. I love corned beef and cabbage. My mom made it every single year. Yeah, no, I like it. But so, yeah, obviously, as people have guessed, this is going to be our St. Patrick's Day episode, or as Irish people call it, Patty's Day. Not a joke, folks. Just a fact. They call it Patty's Day. It is what it is. I'm doing an Irish movie. I was originally going to do Leprechaun, but I thought that that would be one, two on the nose and also predictable, but maybe not in a bad way. But I didn't do it, so. It's cool. I've got the leprechauns covered for you. <laughs> I promise. Leprechauns are hilarious. They're something. Well, I like St. Patrick's Day, too, because my favorite color is green. So there's lots of green stuff. Although that Kelly green, that's actually like the St. Patrick's Day color that you always see is not my favorite color. That's like in your face green. Max likes pretentious green. No, I just like more like earthy green pretentious green (laughs) that color is too much actually interestingly enough my little league softball team no not softball baseball team yes my little league t-ball team there we go we were called like the kellys and our jerseys were kelly green i think in that league like everybody there the teams were all like the colors when i was in soccer in second grade it did not last long uh our jerseys were kelly green as well Oh, fun fact. We were destined to be united by Kelly Green. But I didn't understand the point of the position that I was playing. And every single game got yelled at because it just kind of like ran around the field. Mm. So I don't. (laughs) I was going to say, I actually do watch a little bit of soccer, but I have no idea how to play that sport. (laughs) Max watches soccer for the clingy shorts and the nice butts. Soccer players have like legs and ass for days in such like a delightful way. You don't have to know anything about sports. I do not like sports at all, but I can watch a soccer game. I mean, we went to Buffalo Wild Wings and watched like the World Cup at one point. It was very entertaining. Did we? Yeah. We went to Buffalo Wild Wings. I don't think the World Cup was on. I'm pretty sure it was. I mean, we've been there a couple of times, but one of the times we were there, I'm pretty sure it was on. I don't remember this. Clearly, it was something private going on between Max and the television. (laughs) Anyway. 
That was a lot of rambling. It was a lot. So, okay, I'm doing an Irish movie. I didn't do Leprechaun. I decided to do an Irish one when I was looking up, like, popular, well-rated Irish movies. I did find this one. It was very recommended by a lot of people. And actually, on Rotten Tomatoes, is rated 83%. That sounds great, right? Mm -hmm. Is this movie great? No. It's okay. The movie is called The Hole in the Ground. Oh. Yeah. It's a 2019 movie. It is directed by Lee Cronin. It is his first feature debut film. He had done a bunch of shorts before then. And he also co-wrote the screenplay with Stephen Shields. Okay. So that's that's it. So it has... I'll, I'll also just say the actors right now just because I think this is how you pronounce these names. You know Irish people and their weird-ass names. Fun fact before you keep going. Um, my last name, which I will not say on this podcast because I am the only person with my first and last name combination and I don't want people to find me, uh, is Irish. And I was at a book conference once and there had been like a Facebook group that was put together beforehand for people to meet each other. And a woman from Dublin came and when she met me, she was like, oh, yeah, you have an Irish last name. And she said it. And I was like, yeah, but in my family, we say it like this. And then I said my uh, last name the way that I grew up saying it. And she goes, oh, no. No. I mean, if they're going to spell things like they spell, they got to be prepared for people to have problems. Because, like, they're nice sounding. Like, Gaelic is a very cool sounding language. And you have the names like Siobhan. Grania. But it's like, there's too many letters going on. And then they have accent marks. It's like a lot. I don't know. It's fine, though. Anyways, so they're the two main, main people in this is a... In the movie, they're a mother and her son. The mother's the character is Sarah O'Neill, and the son is Chris O'Neill. But the actress is, I think it's Shauna. It's S E A with an accent N A. Sounds like Shauna to me. Uh, Kerslocky. I probably should have looked that up. But let's go with Kerslocky, Chris Lake, and then James Quinn Markey is the the kid in it. So. There's some other cast members. They don't really matter that much. But what I'm going to talk about, I feel like I've rambled so much, like we both have. And this is going to be more rambling, but it may be interesting rambling. This movie is a changeling movie, which I knew going into it, it didn't thrill me because I have seen changeling stories a lot. It's like the Irish myth that people think of when it's like horrific. I guess like the whole thing about like, Maybe your kid isn't your kid. People find scary. I do find that scary, but this is a changeling movie. One of my issues is that this, to me, did not add anything new to the myth or to the to other things I'd seen. But if you're listening right now and you're thinking, what's a changeling movie? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I'm going to tell you, dear listener, what a changeling is. So changeling myths exist throughout Europe, literally throughout Europe. Like I, I did actually some research on changeling myths. And they exist from, like, Ireland to, like, Scandinavia to Poland, like, Eastern Europe. Everywhere in between has these myths of changelings. But changelings, I'm mostly going to focus on the Irish ones because it's Paedis Day. And so, essentially, a changeling, also historically referred to as an auf or oaf, is a human-like creature found in folklore or folk religions. 
believed to be a fairy that is left in place of a stolen human baby. So basically, fairies come, steal your baby. I don't know why anybody would want to steal a baby. They're disgusting. And then they put a baby, a fairy in place of the baby. Why would they do this? Why would somebody want a human baby instead of a fairy baby? Mischief. Mischief. There's actually a lot of reasons. Uh, different countries have different folklore reasons. A couple of the ones or highlights from ones that I've read are that fairies need human milk to survive or to grow. So they put the changeling baby, it breastfeeds, gets some milk, and then I guess it can grow up. Oh my God, do you remember when we watched Well and there was like that whole trend where bodybuilders were drinking human breast milk? We don't kink uh, shame. Was it, wasn't it Unwell? Unwell. Yes. Yeah, sorry, not well. It's called Unwell, which if, if y'all haven't seen it and you like documentaries, Unwell is fantastically interesting. It was fucking wild, y'all. Oh my God. But the breast milk opposite. Anyways, maybe fairies need breast milk to survive. We don't know. I don't personally know any fairies. Have some milk. <laughs> yeah. So that's like one thing. Um, another thing for it is that they there's like some myth that the changelings are not replaced with fairy babies, but actually like old fairies that are getting ready to die. So they bring them to the human world to die and they just take a baby because it's like, you know, give a penny, take a penny. So anyways, leave a book, take a book. It's yeah. a little free library of creatures. Yes, exactly. So why do these myths exist? Because I'm assuming, let's say that you don't actually believe in the fae folk or believe that changelings are real. Where would these come from? Well, I will tell you where they came from. Changelings, or where it's theorized, they were essentially supposedly created as an aspect of family survival in pre-industrial Europe. A peasant family's sustenance frequently depended upon the product of labor of each member of the family. It was difficult to provide for a person who was a permanent drain on the family's resources. So, the fact that changelings had ravenous appetites and are so frequently mentioned indicate that maybe they were children that were seen as a drain on the family that were sort of devouring their resources but not earning their keep. And it was basically... Basically, changeling tales supported... Other historical evidence in suggesting that infanticide was frequently a solution to these kids that were a drain on their families. That got really dark. Yeah. For people who didn't understand that roundabout thing I said, basically it justified people killing their children because they couldn't support them. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Okay, let's get on with this. So, (laughs) you look stunned. Well, I'm just trying really hard not to make an abortion joke. Hmm. Those don't go over well, so we can't. Probably not. Also, the other thing, there's a huge, I'm summarizing this, but there's like a huge study on the theory that changing myths are thought to have derived from people's lack of understanding of developmental disabilities or birth deformities, especially regressive autism that tends to manifest later in children. So like more like around puberty. Oh, yeah. That so, makes sense. Yeah. So they would think like, okay, my baby is acting like a regular baby and then it grows up and the personality starts to change and so people would think that it's a changeling how do you combat a changeling well i'll tell you some of the theories i'm going to talk a lot about changelings because spoiler for non-spoilers i'm not going to give away the ending of this movie because it's a recent movie and so i'm not talking about the movie that much so bear with me a lot of this is just going to be about changelings because it's more fascinating than this movie was one way to kill a changeling it was thought that if you put it in a fire, it would cause the fairy to jump up the chimney and return the human child instead. This seems like a slightly flawed solution. <laughs> Your child is still in the fire. Well, no, I think the theory is that that child would jump up the chimney and then the fairy would bring the child back to you. 
Yeah. But no. what if you're wrong? <laughs> well, but what if you're right? The fairy brings your child back to you down the chimney yeah, that I, has a fire? Yeah, I guess you put it out real quick. So that seems like a really bad solution. But, you know, that's old-timey medicine. My chi- my kid's not acting right. Have you tried throwing it into the fire? No, no, sir, I have not. Give that a go. Let me know how that works out for you. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes children identified as changelings by the superstitious were often abused or murdered, as I've said. Would you like some examples of that? Yes. Sure. In 1826, Anne Roche bathed Michael Lehi, a four-year-old boy unable to speak or stand, three times in the flesk, that's a river, and he drowned the third time. She swore that, he, that she was merely attempting to drive the fae out of him, and the jury acquitted her. Literally, her murder defense was, he was a changeling and I needed to get the fairy out of him. And the jury was like, no, that checks out. Oh, boy. But that was like, what, 1820? That, yes, that 18, tracks. 1820s things. That tracks. Yeah. And then lastly, in 1895, Bridget Cleary was killed by several people, including her husband and her cousins, after a short bout of illness, most likely pneumonia from the records. A local storyteller, Jack Doon, accused Bridget of being a fairy changeling. Just debatable whether her husband, Michael, actually believed her to be a fairy. Many believe that he had simply concocted this defense after he murdered his wife, but the killers were only convicted of manslaughter rather than murder, and even after the death, they claimed to be convinced that they had not killed Bridget, but only a changeling. Oh boy, yikes. They still probably had to do something, I don't know, but like... I mean, back in those days, killing... Don't kill women. That's the moral of this story. Anyways... Let's move on. Are you ready to talk about this movie now that we know everything about Changelings? Yes. I actually really like Changelings primarily because my imaginary friend looked exactly like me except was like evil when I was a kid. I talk about it in episode 10. Yes. I remember. Wall Walker. Wall Walker. He would hang off of my headboard and whisper in my ear that he was going to murder me. I was four. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Changelings obviously also have the ability to shapeshift. That should go without saying because they have to take the place of people. All right, let's really quickly get into a bit of this movie because already, whatever. So it opens with Sarah, like I said. She's driving her kid out to the country. Making her way downtown. Basically. Walking fast. The kid's name is Chris. Most of this movie is done in this like dark blue-gray filter to make things seem more spooky. Come on, Twilight. I mean, it really is. Like, it just looks like it's just cold and overcast and spooky all the time. Honestly, I would love some place that looked like that. Primarily because I look great in a dark blue filter. Yeah, it was just, it was very obviously done to me. And I was like, all right, can we escape this filter, please? But anyways, so they're driving out to the country. Then they s- stop immediately because they almost hit this woman. She's standing in the middle of the road. She's wearing a hood and muttering to herself. And it's, it's kind of weird, but it comes into play later. And I'll talk about that scene in a bit. So that's already the start of, like, that woman's crazy. So, anyways. So then we kind of, there's, like, a little bit of character development. We learn about things. It's worth noting that we learn that Chris's dad is not there. He had run off at some point. Also, Chris is terrified of spiders. He sees one in the house, and he freaks the fuck out. All right. I relate. All right. That's important to know. Yeah. Well, honestly, yes. It means that he's a smart child. Yes. So... Chris and his mom get into a fight about the dad leaving, and then Chris runs off into the woods. 
Sarah basically goes to chase Chris into the woods, but she can't find him. And then in the back of the house, she finds this like gigantic sinkhole. And I mean like, like bigger than the plot of land that the house is on sinkhole. And in the middle of the sinkhole, it's weird because the dirt like constantly moves to go down into the earth. And she can't find Chris. And she's calling out to him. And then suddenly Chris peers behind her and is like, mommy, what's up? And she's like, don't run off again. Okay. So then we get a dinner scene that we learned that there is a crazy old lady. Hmm. I guess probably the lady in the hood who had murdered her kid. And the story is that she like accidentally ran him over, but that she had like become obsessed with the idea that her kid was not her kid. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So there's a few times it happens where like Sarah will wake up in the middle of the night. She can't find Chris. She runs around. She can't find him. And then suddenly he's in the house and she's like, where did you go? And he's like, I've been here the whole time. That is what it is. So we also learn that. So they allude to Sarah has this big scar on her head and she alludes to something bad happening with her ex. And maybe that's why they left. It is never explained, never expanded upon, nor is it ever relevant to the story. It is it's like they set up this maybe storyline of her running away from abuse, but they never expand upon it or say it. Like, they don't actually... She says that she got it in an accident a year ago, and and it was just, like, a really bad scar. But she never says whether it was an accident or was her husband. It's, like, one of the issues I have with this movie is these weird sort of, like, pointless storylines and lack of character development. I'll talk about it in my final thoughts. Let's just get through this. So, one day, Sarah is driving Chris to school again. And the crazy lady's in the road, and this time she won't move. So Sarah has to get out and be like, girl, like, get out of the road. And I I can relate because people in New Orleans do that shit all the fucking time. I'm not even joking, y'all. I had someone yell at me the other day because I was driving down the road, not going the wrong way, didn't run any stop signs or anything, driving down the road. And a man and his wife with two perfectly fine sidewalks on either side were walking straight down the middle of it. And he yelled at me because they had to move to get out of my way. People love to be in the middle of the road here. I don't think that that's other places, but it's like people love it here. I don't know. Anyway, so this woman is sitting in the middle of the road and Sarah's like, you need to like move. And then this creepy old woman just like looks at her and goes, that's not your boy. And I was like, that's real creepy. And then she just starts screaming. That's not, he's not your son. He's not your son. He's not your son. And then she goes to the window where Chris is and starts just like staring Chris down like this old lady through the window. And then she re like rears back and headbutts the window like hard enough to like break her head open. What the fuck? Yeah. So then her, her husband comes and drags her away. And it's like, okay, you got to go to bed. Sorry. She didn't have her afternoon snack. She's a little hangry. <laughs> Basically. The next day, Sarah finds the old woman's body. Her head is buried in the dirt and her body is just like sticking out of it, like laying down. Like it's weird. Oh, okay. So I was picturing like head in the dirt and then her body like perpendicular to the ground. No, like she's laying down, face down, and her head is just like in the sand. Like a hall tree for your coat. I don't I don't know what that is. Doesn't matter. Keep going. Okay. Okay, so remember how I said that Chris was scared of spiders? We need to know that because of this scene, which is 100% the weirdest, creepiest scene in the movie. The movie has some creepiness, but so, okay. Sarah is awakened one night by the sound of, like, 
somebody like running back and forth in a really like kind of weird way. So she gets up and starts walking to Chris's room and realizes that Chris is like kind of like running about his room and she doesn't know why. So she like puts her head down and looks under the floor, like under the door. And I was expecting a jump scene of like his face coming down and jumping out like and seeing her. That does not happen. She sees a spider start to like walk across the floor. And then she sees Chris's hand like like uh, creep along the floor, almost like his his fingers are mimicking spider legs. And he grabs a spider. And then she hears it disappears. She hears shuffling. And then Chris like emerges from the other side of the bed and he like slowly turns and he is eating the spider like it's like half in his mouth and he's like eating the spider. No. Yeah. Firm pass. That just reminds me of all those videos of the people who will fucking put a spider in their mouth and then do like a TikTok or it became popular when TikTok used to be Vine. They'll do a video where they'll open their mouth and the spider will crawl out. No, fuck that. Ugh, no. Yeah. So that that scene is done pretty well. It's pretty creepy. That scene is actually in the trailer of the movie. So if you just want to see that, go for it. Oh, also, you can watch this movie on, I think it's on Prime. I forgot. Maybe it's on Shutter. Whatever. It's on one of those things. So, okay. Then the next day, there's a scene where she goes to a school recital and the kids are all singing and stuff like that. And, like, she looks, like, very disturbed. And she's, like, staring at Chris the whole time. And then afterwards, like, she's out in the hall and she runs into another mom. And the mom was, like, was, like... Wasn't that just wonderful? Did, didn't you enjoy it? And Sarah just looks at her and goes, that's not my son. Oh, Lord. And I was like, geez, his singing wasn't that bad, lady. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but that's obviously not why she said that. So then she gives him another test where before in the movie, he had said that he didn't like Parmesan cheese. But she offers him some Parmesan cheese. And he's like dousing his pasta in this Parmesan cheese. So she's like. He must be a fairy because he doesn't, you know, he's a monster. I must destroy him. He's eating Parmesan cheese. I hated cheese until I was in my early 20s. Yeah. But I love cheese now. Yeah. So then she's all like, you're not my son. You're not my son. And so he starts like getting really upset by this as any kid would. And then this is probably where I'm going to kind of trail off because she, she kind of, they get into this kind of like scuffle and she ends up passing out outside. She ends up passing out. She wakes up outside and essentially she's next to a hole and her head is being put into this hole. I won't tell you by whom. I don't won't tell you by what. But there is actually quite a bit more of this movie left. It's just giving away spoilers from here on is essentially going to spoil it. And if you want to know if the kid is really a changeling or just some weird kid who developed an affinity for spiders and Parmesan cheese, you can watch it. And... You can see what happens. Does she throw him in a fire? I don't know. Anyways. So, final thoughts on this movie. We're ready for them. The overall atmosphere of this movie. Actually pretty good. I don't like the dark filter, but it's whatever. It helps intensify the situations. I don't 100% get why people are obsessed with this. I mean, people really liked it. My issue with it is, for a changeling story, it is well done. You really do, up until the last part of the movie where they definitively tell you whether he is or is not a changeling, you really do wonder, like, 
is he? Because he's acting really weird. But then you're like, maybe he's not because he also is like, just seems like a kid. And so it does have, it does do well with that. And for a, like, the whole point of the story is kind of, which most changeling stories are going to be, is like, is he a changeling or is the mother maybe going kind of crazy? Keep in mind, she suffered a very bad head injury. Right? Okay. Yeah. So maybe she's just hallucinating and is weird. Maybe she's just a woman and you know how irrational they can be. The hysteria when their womb is just a wandering about their bodies. Exactly. Obviously, we're joking, people. Yes, 100%. <laughs> we haven't referenced my dry humor in quite some time, so that's... That's dry humor for you. So it is a well-done Changeling story. It's not that innovative. I feel like I'd seen this movie before, although the production value is arguably better here. The character development is poor at best. They never explain Chris's father. Like I said before, they never explain what happened to him. There's also all these other side characters that I don't mention because they they literally will like come in be relevant for like a scene and then be gone. Like the mother at the at the uh, school production, for instance. It's like she's kind of relevant for that scene, but then like she's not really anything in the movie. The old woman, like her husband, there's a point where Sarah goes and talks to him and that's like the only time he's ever in the movie. He's not in the end at all. Like it's weird. There's no wrap up for any of these. Yeah, that's, and, I don't like that. That's a lot of loose ends. Yeah, I feel like if you if you're going to put multiple characters in your movie they have to be relevant to the story in some sort of way more than just a plot device i do not like when characters are literally just plot devices to tell the viewer something or to get from point a to point b like have them be important to a story i want to care about them that's just me though other good thing the spider scene very good it kind of you know it's weird because i think i saw one review of this movie that said one of the people that did not like it that was like this seems like a short story movie or like a short that was just drawn out. And that is very much how I felt like this could have been like a 30 minute short film, really good. And instead it was an hour and a half of like, this is okay. That kind of makes sense. Cause you said the director primarily did short films before. Yeah. He only had done shorts so that. Yeah. Yeah. So it seemed a bit drawn out all in all. I was kind of like, this movie is okay. Also, I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but the ending is very mediocre, even though I'm not going to spoil it. It is very meh. It is not that interesting or suspenseful. And you're kind of just like, you're, it just leaves you with being like, no, okay. Whereas a movie like this, where the whole point of it is, is this kid or is this kid not a changeling? I feel like the ending should give you this like, oh my God, revelation moment where something crazy happens and you don't get that. I mean, I'll tell you after the recording exactly what happens, yeah. but it's like, whatever. Anyway, so that's the thing. For for St. Patrick's Day, if you were looking for some movies, I don't 100% think I'd recommend this. I think that this would be an okay movie if you want some sort of like dark, mysterious, atmospheric thing to kind of put on. But if you want something like super fun and interesting, I, I honestly don't think I'd recommend this, which I feel bad because it is a really highly rated Irish film. I don't know. When have the Irish ever done anything good? And we're cutting that. (laughs) Anyways, that is the hole in the ground. And you know me, I'm normally such a big fan of holes. I was waiting for a hole joke. I knew it was going to happen at some point. I had to put it in eventually. That's a two for one. Anyways, 
Now, tell me what you're going to talk about. Mm. All right. Well, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I am doing a book that is well known to anyone who has read Grady Hendrix's Paperbacks from Hell. Today, I will be talking to you about the 1966 classic, The Little People by John Christopher. 66? Yep. I think this might be one of the earliest books you've ever done. Well, I did Turn of the Screw. That's 1800s. That'll always win. Yeah, I, I do remember that. But as far as like modern books, yeah, definitely. Um, I mentioned Paperbacks from Hell because Grady Hendrix begins his introduction by talking about this book and basically credits this book with spawning his interest in and love for vintage horror. Like he just found it at a used bookstore one day and was like, I have to read this. Oh. And next thing he knew, boom. High praise. So let's talk about the cover really quick because that is what caught his eye. And you're probably asking yourself, Cole, how did this catch his eye at all? So the edition I have is actually a reprint and it just has like a picture of a castle tower on it. Photo taken by a woman named Kathleen Martin. Let me show you the cover that Grady Hendrix saw. Okay. Because, yeah, I'm looking at this and I'm like, hmm. This is the cover that Grady Hendrix saw. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. So this one was painted by Hector Garrido. And just let it soak in. Gentle listener, see our Instagram. The castle. The screaming couple. The leprechauns wearing Nazi uniforms, carrying whips. Just marinate in it. Steep in it. Oh, I was, I was not expecting that. <laughs> I still can't, still can't stop laughing when I look at it. You're going to have to put it away. <laughs> the look on his face and the fucking swastika armband. His angry little face. Oh, boy. <laughs> So let's dive right into the blurb. The Irish countryside can be the most beautiful place on earth. Daniel and Bridget thought so when they moved to the old castle she had inherited in that remote part of the land. But there was something wrong with the castle and its sinister past. Something horribly wrong. The mysterious visitors in the dead of night were only the first signs of this escalating nightmare, which could only end one way. In terror. Okay. I mean, I feel, yeah, okay. I'm on board with this. Inheriting castle, that's totally normal. Except I can guarantee you, you have no idea what's about to happen to you. (laughs) (sighs) So I've been saying on this one for a while, like I knew I was going to do this for St. Patrick's Day back in like October. And it was tough keeping it to myself to the point where I did at one point tell Denise everything. (laughs) And I dropped a few hints to Lara. Anyway, let's jump right in. The story opens with Bridget finding out she's just been left some property by a distant cousin. And after a quick trip to the solicitor, which is like a lawyer in the UK, uh, the solicitor's son drives her and Daniel out to the property. And it's called a castle, but it's more of like a manor house with the rundown remains of two castle towers on the property 
One is attached to the house and the other thing is like kind of off to the side. And the whole property is a mess. Super dirty, super gross. And Matt, who is the son of the solicitor, he's like, hey, maybe you could clean this up and turn it into a B&B. And Bridge is like, I think I kind of want to do it. And Daniel's like, that's a stupid idea. And Bridge is like, but I'm a strong, independent woman, so I'm going to do it. And honestly, good for her because Daniel is a dick. Yeah. Follow your Airbnb dreams. Except Airbnb is terrible. She was turning <laughs> this into a B&B. Different. <laughs> so while they're exploring slash cleaning up the house, they find this like workshop slash man cave study thing in the tower that's attached to it. And it's got a bunch of little fully furnished dollhouses in it. And everyone's just kind of like, all right, cousin Seamus, not the most normal of hobbies, but we support you. Yeah, people people did stuff like that back then. Sure. I actually love watching like Facebook videos that are time lapses of people building like little Barbie houses out of pieces of cardboard boxes. It's fascinating. I can do it for hours. I love watching it. Anyway. I'll, I'll take your word for that. Fast forward to opening weekend, and we have two families visiting, and oh boy. So on one end, we have Waring, which is his name, W-A-R-I-N-G. It did not come up as a spelling error, which tells me that apparently this is not a made-up name, which was a surprise to me. Could be one of those 60s names. And Helen, his wife. And they are visiting from the U.S. with their daughter, Cherry. (laughs) Cherry like the fruit? Cherry is her name. Okay. Waring is just your average guy, whatever. But Helen really delights in berating and emotionally abusing him. She's really terrible. She's really awful. Every scene with him feels like when you'd be at a friend's house and their parents would start fighting and you could hear. That's always awkward. I don't like to be around people fighting. Yeah, it was... mm. Except I don't think any of my friends growing up had parents who fought, at least not in front of people. I grew up in a very, like, white bread, super suburbia. You've seen my neighborhood that I grew up in. I mean, I don't think my friends ever fought around me. I feel like it was just, like, not something you did, like, around other people's kids because everyone, you know, is always so big into, like, keeping up appearances. Also, little kids can't keep secrets worth shit. Anyway, super awkward. On the other hand, on the other end of the awkward spectrum, we have Stefan and his wife, Hani. He's a former German soldier, and she is an Auschwitz survivor. Um, um, I cannot really make a joke about that. Nope, it's like the one topic. Just off the table. That's a weird dynamic. But if it works for them, it works for them. Anyway, so Daniel is just arriving at the B&B because he was kind of like handling things. I think they lived in London or some like expected place. So he was kind of handling things so he could stay at the B&B with Bridget. And Matt is there because he was helping Bridget out while Daniel was gone because she needed a man, obviously. And spoiler alert, in this time, Matt has fallen in love with Bridget. And I know what you're thinking. Where's the horror, Cole? Give it a minute. First of all, when Daniel arrives, Matt is very jealous. So our first horror is how much of a garbage person Matt is. 
So Bridget is insisting that she and Daniel keep separate rooms for propriety because they aren't married yet. But one night when Daniel goes to her room, Matt follows, then goes into an adjoining room and listens to them fucking through the wall. And then he goes to the library and he gets hammered because he's heartbroken. Because you see, he can no longer love Bridget because she is, and I quote, loose and lascivious. That's the actual words. Those are positive traits to me. Both of them. Side note, virginity is a social construct utilized by the patriarchy to oppress and control women. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Anyway, it's cool. Full-ass adult Matt soon starts a thing with teenage Cherry. Uh, He likes her because of her purity and innocence, when in reality, Cherry's relationship with her parents is strained because she's a nymphomaniac, and the final straw for them was when she got caught getting gangbanged by all of the men working at a summer camp. I mean, can you blame her? Summer camp, what else are you going to do? God. But Matt doesn't care anymore at this point because his distress at Bridget's looseness has turned him into an alcoholic, so who's he to judge? And let's get back to the story. I just wanted to tell you about that shit show of a dynamic. These are very interesting characters. So, on the first night there, Bridget asks Stefan, Hey, can you translate this journal that I found? It's in German. And we're just going to move that to the back burner to simmer for a hot minute. I just mention it now because it happened on the first night. But also on the first night, while he's getting ready for bed, Waring thinks he sees a tiny figure frolicking about outside. But when he calls Helen over, it's gone. The next night, because Helen is a bitch, she brings it up while everyone is at dinner to try and humiliate him. But Matt is like, let's talk about fairies. And everyone gets really into it. And Helen is genuinely actually upset that people just didn't end up teasing and making fun of Waring. She's terrible. Hmm. The next morning, Daniel wakes up in Bridget's bed and she's like, you got to go before people wake up. Plus I got to start breakfast. And he's like, but what am I supposed to do with all this morning wood? (laughs) And she's like, deal with it. Light content warning. Daniel just like casually comp, contemplates sexually assaulting her, quote, to put her in her place, but he decides to go for a walk instead. And there, outside the other tower, he finds a teeny tiny footprint that looks like it was wearing a super cute sandal. (laughs) So everyone decides, okay, we're going to see if we can find the little people. They're not like actually leprechauns, but it's close enough. While investigating in the rooms under the tower that is attached to the house, First off, Stefan finds another journal that is in German. This is also important. We will get there. Then they decide that they're going to turn off all the lights. And when they hear scurrying, they use flashlights. And what do they find? Little people. Leprechauns of a sort. There are two males. They get away. But they manage to capture a female. And everyone is gathered around her in the kitchen when all of a sudden they realize that she is speaking German. In the Irish countryside. Okay. So Stefan chats with her for a bit. We learn her name is Greta. The night comes to a close. They decide that they don't want Greta getting away. So they lock her in a laundry hamper. Overnight. What did she do to them? Exist. Greta's already been through a lot. You're about to find out. 
So the next morning, after reading the other journal, Stefan is found by the hamper talking to Greta, and he says, I know who the parents are. So buckle up. Turns out that Bridget's cousin isn't the only family member involved here. A distant uncle on the other side of the family is also in the picture. He apparently was a Nazi scientist at a concentration camp. He specialized in experimenting on pregnant Jewish women, which is where he learned that a chemical administered at just the right point in pregnancy killed the pituitary gland of the fetus, therefore keeping the child tiny forever. That's right, folks. Our German-speaking leprechauns are actually Jewish fetus people. Hmm. I did not see that coming. I told you. Nothing prepares you. Though... It's pretty, I'm okay with this so far. It's not something you could pull off in modern times, I don't think. There's another layer, too. We'll get there. (laughs) So after the war, Uncle fled Germany and was like, I'm going to stay with my cousin by marriage, Seamus. And the rest is, like, mildly irrelevant. Also, the, I don't. I don't know what to call them. I don't want to call them little people. I don't want to call them leprechauns Uh, at this point, now that we know what they are. The victims of horrifying human experimentation, they were tortured. Like, Greta is covered in scars from being whipped. Yikes. And I want to say, like, the journal talks about, like, squeezing them and things like that. I don't know. Anyway. Well, they decide to take Greta down to the basement to call her friends. And five males arrive, but they're irrelevant because there is, however, one other female, and her name is Emma. And this chapter is from Daniel's point of view, and we already know he's a trash dumpster fire of a human. And he's like, is it just me, or is that foot-tall fetus woman kind of hot? Wait, they're a foot tall? Oh, like two feet, maybe, but yeah. Like Even still, I was picturing like four feet. No. Wow, they're really small. Real tiny. And he's like, ooh, look at that one, though. She doesn't have any whipping scars. And apparently, although they can't hit puberty or grow at all, because this is vintage horror, Emma is still, like, super curvaceous and, like, super pretty. Well, shortly after, Daniel's in the library and Emma shows up. He's, like, slumped down in a chair and she climbs up onto his chest and takes off her dress. And because this is also objectifying women... We have noted specifically that the added benefit of her never hitting puberty is she's completely hairless. Dude, she's also a foot tall. Anyway, she slides down and starts opening his pants. And Daniel's like, oh, yes. But then he's like, oh, no, and pushes her away. Wait, why? I mean, why does he have such a change of heart? Oh, I I think he just realizes how weird it's going to be. I mean, that's a little ableist. And shortly after, our um, survivors disappear. Like all of them? Yeah, all of the foot-tall people. Okay. Like I said, I don't really want to call them old people anymore because they're survivors of horrifying human experimentation, even though they're fictional. Sure. I mean, they are called little people in the books, right? True. It's whatever. Do whatever makes you comfortable. That night, everyone hallucinates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bridget and Daniel hear screaming from the tower. Warring and Ellen Warring and Helen have this weird like out of body experience. 
Stefan and Hani, it's the weirdest one. They're listening to the radio when all of a sudden a Nazi propaganda song comes on. And then Hani thinks she's back at Auschwitz. And Stefan thinks that she is his father, who was a concentration camp guard, and starts trying to strangle her. And Matt and Cherry feel the house moving, and not just because they finished banging. Hmm. Okay. So Bridget and Daniel go to investigate the screaming, but the little people trip her, and she falls down the stairs. And Daniel is like, fuck that, and goes back to their room. But then shortly after, he's like, wait a second. I should, like, make sure she's okay. So at the bottom of the stairs, all the little people are standing around her. He, like, goes down the stairs and kicks one, and they all flee. And this breaks the hallucination because, surprise, the little people have ESP, and they were trying to scare the guests to death. So they're magical. Well, they are leprechauns. They're psychic. Yeah, they're leprechauns. Everyone leaves the next morning and Bridget decides she's going to shut down the B&B and just leave the property to Greta and company. And that's the end. So what happens to the little people? They're just like around. Yeah. Bridget's like, I'm not going to sell the property so no one will disturb them. There's plenty of non-perishables. It's kind of a happy ending, I guess. The AC is running. I'm playing their favorite song. (laughs) I mean, if they get to keep the house. Sure. But yeah, that's basically it. Everything wrapped up. Oh, and um, Matt and Cherry get married. Eh. That's fine. I mean, I'm fine with heterosexual marriage. I just don't need to, like, have it forced upon me all the time. She's also 17. She's also like, who would have ever thought that we would find love? Me, a nymphomaniac, and you, an alcoholic. Just posting constant pictures on her Facebook. Met my soulmate. Hashtag love forever. My one and only. Cut to three months later. They're broken up. Gangbang. What? <laughs> hey, you can gangbang within a marriage if that's what you want to do. As long as it is completely consensual and agreed upon by both parties. Well, this going to be more than both parties, but yes. No, well, I mean like. I know what you're saying. Extramarital relations are fine as long as both members of the marriage are cool with it. Just put that gangbang clause in your marriage contract, folks. You'll thank me later. Yes, you will. What? (laughs) God. My coworkers listen to this. All right. So this one was a bit of a shit show mess. I'm going to give it three out of five dollhouses that look suspiciously lived in. The beginning was actually very slow. Like, very slow. I liked it because it was all about setting up a B&B in the Irish countryside, which you know that I would <laughs> love to do. But I could see the like average horror reader not really caring for that. Uh, after that, it is a broken down wooden roller coaster of crazy that is shoehorned into your brain. And then there's just like a 40 page psychic battle. Whatever. Three is like a solid, modestly fine number. And that's the little people. It sounds okay. It's not 100% what I expected from that cover, but pretty close. The cover is still great. The cover is amazing. But anyways, if you were in the little people, would you get killed? Does anybody get killed? No, not really, to be honest with you. They're just mischievous. Well, they're trying to kill them. They're trying to scare them to death. So you find out that like the little people use their psychic powers 
to like scare all the rats on the property to death. Hmm. And they never tried to use their psychic powers on the uncle and cousin Seamus because they both tortured them. So they were scared, but then they met full sized, not tortured humans. Um, and we're like, oh, these are nice. Let's kill them. Like you do sometimes. Like you do. But no, no one dies in it, so I wouldn't die. I know that's kind of a lame excuse, but yeah, whatever. It is what it is. Would you die in the glory hole in the ground? No. Nobody really dies in it besides the old lady. She has a rough time. Yeah, and her kid. Which... I can't remember if I said her kid died. They said it was an accident. Basically, their kid was hit in the car. That's like another part of the whole like not explaining things. They said the kid was hit in the car, and everyone's like, it was an accident. And they're kind of like the like Agatha Harkness. It was an accident. Wink, wink. But they don't. It was Agatha all along. Right, but they don't ever actually say that they like intentionally killed this kid because they didn't think it was their kid. Like they literally at just one point they just I don't know. It's never explained. So long story short. No, I would not die because nobody dies in this except for one person. You probably didn't like that movie. I mean, I didn't hate it. I don't want people to think it's like the worst thing I've ever seen, but it was like, Matt. I, don't, I don't know. There was, it was, it was not okay. There was things that, about it that were not okay. And I don't get, it's really highly rated that it blew my mind how highly rated this thing was. Anyway, that's that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, whatever you want. This episode was very concerning. Irish songs and jigs, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to talk about. Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second. To die.